You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Bhutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Let me ask you this. In fact, show of hands, how many of you have ever been like in an actual fight, like a, like a physical fight, like, like a fist fight? Okay, a couple ladies' hands went up. Went up. That's kind of scary. Uh, <laughs> fellas, watch out. Anyway, so, you know, I mean, a lot of us have, right? I mean, you know, I certainly have. Unfortunately, I've been in, in more than my fair share. I don't mean like this week. This is, this is a new year. I haven't been in any fights this year. Um, but, you know, you know, but we've all been there, right? In fact, maybe you remember when you were a kid, like in grade school or maybe middle school, all of a sudden somebody comes up to you and they're like, you know what? I choose you after school in the parking lot. So then you go there and, and all of a sudden like the whole school is gathered there. They're all in a circle and they're all chanting, fight, 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 right? Kind of like this meme that I saw that, that says, Jesus, six o'clock, parking lot. And the guy says, I don't want to alarm anyone, but I think this church just challenged Jesus to a fight. <laughs> well, in a sense, that, that, that's the scene here in Galatians chapter 2, uh, where, where, where you have two he- theological heavyweights, the Apostle Paul and, and the Apostle Peter, uh, squaring off toe-to-toe, face-to-face. So now as we go uh, back to verse 11, verses 11 and 12, we, we now look at the fight scene, the, the scene of the fight. So in verse 11, Paul says again, but when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And so Paul says that one day Peter came and visited Antioch. But when Peter visited, Paul says that he, he challenged Peter. In fact, he opposed him to his face. He confronted him. And we wonder, well, why? I mean, what happened? Well, to understand what happened, we, we, we need to know the context. Now, the context here really goes all the way back to Acts chapter 10. Now, remember, in Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter has this vision of, of this sheet but with, with all these unclean animals, that, that is, you know, non-kosher food, food that, that Jewish people are not allowed to eat. And, and, and so this sheet is, is being lowered down from heaven. Or as one little boy described it, it was a vision of pigs in a blanket. And, you know? and so uh, really, Peter's having this vision of uh, like, like pork green chili, pork tenderloin roast, and, and, and bacon. I think I just heard somebody's stomach say, mmm, bacon. You know, and, and so Peter sees this, and all of a sudden he hears this voice, the voice of the Lord say to him, take, eat, and kill. And Peter responds and says, no, Lord, I like the way Graham Scroge put it when he said, you can say no, and you can say Lord, just don't say no, Lord. But Peter did. He said, no, Lord, for, for, for I've never eaten anything unclean. I've, I've always held to the Jewish kosher diet. Now listen, you have to understand that this vision went, went, went far beyond the food that was being eaten, but really it was about the people who ate the food. In fact, uh, God was going was gonna, to you know, use this vision in Peter's life. Now, you know, we, we've all heard the saying, you are what you eat, right? Well, the ancient Jews basically believed that. They, they believed that if you ate unclean or if you would sinful food, then that would make you a sinner. You see, that's the reason, by the way, that, that Jewish people would not eat with Gentile people. Because they viewed the Gentiles as sinners, and if you ate their food, if you shared their food with them, then their, their sin would, 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 would contaminate the food, and now their food would contaminate you. You would catch their sin by eating their food. And so they, they wouldn't eat with, 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 with Gentiles. Well, God was going to use this vision to, to tell Peter that, that he was going to send Peter to a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. So Peter goes to Cornelius' house, 
He, he, he shares the gospel with Cornelius. In fact, the Bible says that Cornelius and his whole family accept Jesus. They become Christians. They, they get saved. In fact, the Bible says the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues. Now we wonder, well, why, why did they speak in tongues? Well, in this case, this was a sign to Peter, as well as to, to, to the rest of the Jewish Christians, that, that, that these Gentiles, Cornelius and his family, that they too had become Christians, that they really did get saved. They really did come to Christ. You have to understand, Peter was, was a Jewish man raised with, with deep prejudices against anyone who was not Jewish. And, and, and so uh, all of a sudden his, his whole way of thinking gets revolutionized when the very same Holy Spirit who, who, who filled Peter and James and John and, and all these other Jewish people who, who, who became Christians, who believed in Jesus, now that very same Holy Spirit is filling these Gentiles, Cornelius and his family. The Holy Spirit showed no distinction. And that's why it says later on in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, it says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And again, the Bible says in, in Romans 10, verse 12, it says, for there's no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all. So now that's uh, Peter. Uh, and, and, his, and, his, and his encounter with Cornelius and how God used him. Now, a few years later, however, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that the apostle Paul, uh, a few years later, goes to the, to the region of Antioch in Syria, and he starts preaching the gospel to Gentiles, to, to the Greeks that are there, and thousands of them get saved. And, and, and Paul and Barnabas plant this church, this new Christian church in Antioch. When all of a sudden, this so-called group called the Judaizers that we've been talking about for the last several weeks, the Judaizers show up on the scene claiming that they were sent by James and Peter from Jerusalem. Now, they weren't really sent by uh, James and Peter. They were just claiming that they were. And so they come on the scene and, and they're like, hey, listen, if you really want to be saved, if you really want to know that you're going to go to heaven, if you want to be a real Christian, well, then in addition to believing in Jesus, you also have to convert to Judaism. You know, you, you, you've got to get circumcised, you, you've got to keep the law of Moses, and you've got to keep the strict Jewish kosher diet. Now, this caused a, a lot of confusion in the church in Antioch. And so the leaders of the church in Antioch send Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem uh, to, to meet with the rest of the apostles to get clarification about this. You know, to get clarification. Uh, you know, are you saved by grace or are you saved by works? Is there one gospel for the Jewish people, but a completely different gospel for the Gentile people? So Paul and Barnabas, they go back to Jerusalem and they have this council meeting with the rest of the apostles. And they debate this. They go back and forth and forth and back when all of a sudden Peter stands up. And, and, and Peter reminds all the apostles of how God years back had sent Peter to Cornelius' house. Peter preached the gospel and Cornelius, a, a Gentile, and his whole family got saved and were filled by the Holy Spirit. And then Peter adds these words. In Acts chapter 15, somewhere around verse 11, he says, you know what? We Jews... We get saved the same way that they, the Gentiles, get saved. That is, we both get saved by grace alone. And that settled the issue. In fact, so much so that the Apostle James writes a letter and sends a letter back with Paul and Barnabas to the church in Antioch. In the letter, they basically say that, that you know what? 
the Gentiles do not need to convert to Judaism. They, they don't need to get circumcised. They don't need to keep the law of Moses. They don't need to keep the kosher diet. None of those things. They, they say, you know what? They just need to avoid paganism and anything connected to paganism, like, like food, sacrifice to idols, or, or sexual immorality. But basically in the letter, they sum it up and say, you know what? You're saved not by works, but by grace alone. Then they add an interesting little PS. In Acts chapter 15, they had a, a PS at the end, and they're like, hey, PS, there's this group that claims that we sent them. We don't even know who they are. They, they were not sent by us. Well, now, years later, evidently, Peter decides he's going to go and visit Antioch, where, where, where Paul and Barnabas are. So he goes and visits, and, and probably he's just curious to, to, to see how God's moving among the Gentiles, and he just wants to see it for himself. So he goes there, and, and when he first gets there, I mean, he eats with everybody. I mean, he's, he's breaking bread with Jews, and he's breaking bread with Gentiles alike. He's eating with everybody until that same group, the Judaizers, who are harassing Paul, start pressuring Peter. But, but unlike Paul, Peter caved into the pressure. He gave in to the pressure, and he starts kind of ghosting the Gentiles and, and, and now only hangs out with the Judaizers. And so we wonder, well, well, what happened? What caused Peter to cave into the pressure? Well, in verse 12, Paul tells us that he was fearing the circumcision uh, 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 group, the, the, the group of the circumcision. He was fearing them. The word fearing implies that he was afraid of what they were thinking. He was afraid of their opinion. Hey, listen, aren't the words of Proverbs 29, 25 true when it says the fear of man brings a snare? You know, and, and so one of the things that I love about the Bible is, is that the Bible tells you the truth about its heroes, warts and all. The Bible doesn't cover up uh, the, 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 the warts. Listen, we need to understand that, that, that these people that God used, they were not perfect people. They were just people, people. <laughs> you know, they're just normal people. And so Peter wasn't like up on this higher level and completely different and, and super, super holy. He was a man just like anyone else. And, he, and, 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 and here he had his moment of weakness. And so he kind of gives in to the pressure of what they thought about him. Listen, can I say to you that, that when it comes to taking a stand for the gospel, you must be willing to stand alone. Unfortunately, in this moment, Peter was afraid to stand alone. He, he was afraid of what this group thought about him, their opinion of him, so he caved in. Not unlike that time, years and years before, uh, on the night when Jesus was arrested and, 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 and many people were, were looking at Peter and they were questioning Peter and saying, hey, aren't you one of his followers? Aren't you one of his disciples? Certainly you were among those who followed him, weren't you? And what happened? Peter caved into the pressure and three different times he denied the Lord. And now, years and years later, much in the same way, he has a moment of weakness and he caves into the pressure. Now, in verses 13 and 14, we see what, what, what was wrong with what Peter did, how Peter was wrong. Verse 13, Paul says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, stop there. In, the, in my Bible, I underlined that section. Here's what was wrong. What was wrong was their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In other words, their mouth went one direction, but their conduct went another direction. 
They might have been preaching the gospel, but they weren't necessarily living the gospel. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So Paul continues, and he says, So I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now again, all of this that we just read is under the umbrella of verse 11. Where in verse 11, Paul started off by saying that when when Peter came to Antioch, he opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's how that reads in the English Standard Version, which I'm reading this morning, the ESV. But but in the NIV, it it says because he was clearly wrong. Well, now how was, was Peter clearly wrong? I mean, well, what did he do? I mean, what was, what was, was he teaching heresy? What was, was he a false teacher? No, Peter was not a false teacher. Peter was not a, a false prophet. You see, the problem was that Peter was sending a mixed message. Now, by the way, it wasn't his message from the pulpit that was causing confusion. No, it was his message from the dinner table that was causing confusion. Because, you know, in one minute, he's, he's eating with the Gentiles and breaking bread with them. And he's like, oh, hey, you know what? Because of, because of the love of Jesus and because of the grace of God, we're all one. There, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. We're all one in the body of Christ. But then a certain group comes along, the, the Judaizers, and, and all of a sudden, in that brief moment, he cared more about impressing them than he did about standing for the truth. And all of a sudden, he, he looks at them. He's like, hey, guys, you know what? I like you and everything, but I can't be seen with you. You know, I mean, like, you know, I, I like you guys. You're, you're, we're, we're all part of the same family. We're all part of the body of Christ. But we got to keep that on the down low. If anybody asks, you haven't seen me. And so, you know, and, and so it was sending a, a mixed message. He was preaching grace, but he was living the law. And, and Paul doesn't mince words about this, right? Paul says that Peter and, the, and, and those with him were hypocrites. Strong word. In fact, in the original language, the word hypocrite, hypocrites, uh, describes wearing a mask. It, it's a theater word. It's a word that uh, d- describes the, the actors in these Greek plays would have these little masks on, on a stick. So they'd hold the mask up, and they were one character, then they'd take the mask down, and they're a different character. They were called in that culture two-faced. They had one face for this part and a different face for that part. And so literally, you know, Peter's, Paul's saying to Peter, listen, Peter, you're such a two-faced hypocrite. I mean, one minute you're, you're having pigs in a blanket with the Gentiles, and the very next minute, you know, you, 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 you pretend to be something that you're not, and you put on a mask. Now, why was this a problem? Well, it was a problem because others were following Peter's example, and evidently among them was none other than Barnabas. Now remember, Paul and Barnabas were, were like the co-pastors of the church in Antioch. So if, if, if Peter went this direction and Barnabas followed that direction, well now others who, who are in the church are going to follow Barnabas' direction. It's going to spread like wildfire. And so Paul and Barnabas were, were co-pastors, they were also co-church planners, and they were co-missionaries. They, they, they had been partners in ministry for years at this point. In fact, if you remember, Barnabas was the one who, who actually defended Paul and, and, and spoke up for Paul after Paul became a Christian and nobody believed that it was true. Nobody believed Paul was really a Christian. Barnabas was the one who spoke up and defended him. And so this was causing confusion and division in the body of Christ. And so Paul confronts it. Now in verses 15 and 16, we see what, what it was that Paul was really fighting for. In verse 15, Paul says, 
We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so Paul says that that we're not justified by the works of the law, we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, that is the essence of the gospel. That's the essence of the gospel. What's the gospel? The the essence of the gospel is that, you know what? There's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. You don't get to the Father by by righteous works. You don't get to the Father by by conducting the right rituals and the right ceremonies and, and, and all these traditions. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. In other words, you're saved by grace and faith alone. You know, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I don't know if you noticed, but it doesn't say that you're saved by faith. Some of you are looking at, looking at me like I'm on drugs. Don't look at me. Look at your Bible. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For, you, for, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Think of it this way. Your salvation was accomplished by, the, by, by God's grace, and yet it's received by your faith. You see, in other words, God's grace alone is what puts you in a right relationship with God, and you receive that relationship by faith. So you're saved by grace, and it's through faith. By faith, you accept it. By faith, you just believe that it's real. By faith, you just believe that Jesus died for you. And because he died for you, you've been forgiven. But it's through his grace. It was because of his grace that he died for you. It's because of his grace that your sins are actually forgiven. You just need to accept it. It's, it's through faith. I love the way a Calvary Chapel pastor named David Guzik put it when he said, we don't do anything to deserve his grace. He, he doesn't give it to us because we're so wonderful. He gives it to us because he's so wonderful. And by the way, Peter knew this, right? I mean, didn't I mention a moment ago that, 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 that Peter was the very one who, who boldly stood in that council meeting in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, stood for the gospel? You know, Peter stood in Acts chapter 15, verse 11, and he said, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are saved. And so Peter was the one who years back said that, that both Jews and Gentiles are saved the exact same way. It's by grace alone. So what was Paul fighting for? He was fighting for the doctrine of salvation, that you're saved by grace alone. And by the way, because Paul was fighting for for the truth of the gospel, the, the, the doctrine of salvation, in many ways, that may have reminded Peter of what Peter himself once stood for all those years ago in Acts chapter 15. It may have rekindled in his memory what he actually stood for. And so in verses 17 to the end, we see that Paul fought for the truth of the gospel. Verse 17. But but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too uh, uh, are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And, and, and the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so, in effect, Paul's saying, listen, Peter, look, you, you are rebuilding the very thing we tried so hard to tear down. He's saying, Peter, listen, we, we've been trying so hard to build up the gospel of grace and trying so hard to tear down legalism, and yet in one felt swoop, you know, because you chose not to stand for the gospel, but instead you chose to sit with the legalists and eat with them, you literally in that felt swoop tore down everything we've been trying to build. Now in verse 20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Very well-known verse. We've seen it on t-shirts, bumper stickers, and, you know, little, little anklet tattoos. <laughs> but, but, you see, you have to understand, there is a, a comparison and a contrast happening here. What's being compared and contrasted is legalism versus the gospel. Legalism versus grace. You see, the message of legalism is this. Legalism has the message of, you know what? In order for you to get right with God, you've got to work at it in the flesh. You know, in, in your own strength, you, you've got you've to keep the law. In your own strength, you've got to keep these rituals. In your own strength, you've got you've to you know, follow this custom and that diet and do this. And you've got to do it in your own power, your own ability. That's the message of legalism, but the message of the gospel is that, you know what, you cannot do it in your own strength. In your own strength, it's impossible to, to keep the law of God perfectly. In your own strength, it's impossible to, to carry that out. In fact, Paul says here that you need to die to the law of God, and instead, you need to have Jesus, the lawgiver, live his life in you. You don't have the strength to do it. You need his strength. You need him in you to do it for you. That's what he means when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Then in verse 21, it's interesting. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. Again, that's how it's rendered in the ESV, the English Standard Version. But the old King James has an interesting take. The old King James says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Now, how can you frustrate the grace of God? I think there's two ways that you can frustrate the grace of God. Number one, you can, you can frustrate the grace of God by adding to the gospel. And number two, you can frustrate the grace of God by denying the gospel. Now, first of all, keep in mind, it was the Judaizers who were adding to the gospel, right? Remember, their message was not grace alone. No, their message was grace plus, Grace plus uh, keeping the law of Moses. Grace plus circumcision. Grace plus this ritual. Grace plus the kosher diet. It was grace plus this and grace plus that. But as I said before, when, when, when we add anything to the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. But then number two, we can frustrate the grace of God by denying the gospel. Now in fairness, Peter was not denying the gospel from the pulpit, but he might have been denying the gospel from the dinner table. As I said before, he was, he was preaching grace, but he was living the law. And it was all because of fear. It said that he, he feared the party of the circumcision group. He, 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 he was afraid of what they thought. And so for Peter, caving into his fears, you know, what it looked like was, was sitting with the legalists and, and, and having dinner with them and eating with them. You know, and Peter, he knew the truth of the gospel, right? In fact, on many occasions, Peter boldly took a stand for the gospel, but on this particular occasion, 
He felt the peer pressure. He felt the pressure of the moment, those around him, and he was afraid of what they thought, and he, he shrank. He caved into his fears. So that's what it looked like for Peter. But, you know, maybe it looks different for you. You know, maybe for you, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's, it's, you know, you go to the family barbecue, you know, where, where everybody knows you, and they've known you your whole life, even before you became a Christian, they knew what you were like. Or maybe, maybe you know, you, you, you go out with a group of coworkers after work or you go out with your softball team after the game and, and, you, know, and, and, and you go out and, and, and all of a sudden you have an opportunity to be bold for the gospel. Now maybe it's as subtle as, as, as that for, for whatever reason you just choose not to, to, to order drinks that night. You, you don't see anything wrong with having an occasional drink but for whatever reason you've got this conviction that evening that, that the Holy Spirit's saying, hey, let, don't order any drinks. So you just don't order a drink. And, 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 and in that moment, they all look at you and they're like, you know, hey, why aren't you having anything to drink? And you're like, well, hey, you know what? I, I have all the joy I need. I, I don't need happy hour. I've got like a happy life. And maybe they look at you and they're like, well, I'd like to find out how you found that. How'd you get a happy life? And in that moment, you now have an opportunity to tell them how Jesus changed your life. But perhaps, instead of seizing the moment, maybe you cave in. Now, maybe caving in is just as simple as, as you know, they're pressuring you. And they're like, you know, come on, man. Don't, don't, don't be like Captain Buzzkill over here. You know, one drink isn't going to hurt anybody, so you have one. Or perhaps you cave in by simply remaining silent. They ask you how you have this joy in your life, and you remain silent. You, you don't have the courage to tell them. You caved in to the pressure. Listen to this. There's a fine line between denying the gospel versus denying the opportunity to preach the gospel. In a sense, that's where Peter was. He didn't deny the gospel when he was preaching, but he may have denied the opportunity to preach the gospel by sitting and dining with the Judaizers. By sitting with them, he was endorsing them. By, 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 by sitting with them and eating with them, he was blessing their message. He was blessing their perverted version of the gospel rather than taking a clear stand for the gospel. So that's why Paul opposed him. Now, on that note, let me say two things about, about Paul's confrontation, about Paul's fight with Peter. Number one, it, it seems that this was a one-off event. Now, I say that because, you know, there are some who, who think that, 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 that Peter and Paul had this ongoing feud, this ongoing battle, that they were always at odds with each other. That's just not true. This is the only time that we read this in the Bible. It's not like this happened again and again and again. It's not like Paul writes uh, to, uh, to all the churches and say, hey, watch out for Peter. Beware of Peter. Now, Paul did that with other groups. He, he said, hey, watch out for, for uh, you know, uh, Phygelus and, 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 and Hamingenus and, and these other heretics. You know, watch out for these guys. But he, he doesn't do that with, with Peter. It was a one-off event. Now, number two, let me say that, that Paul wasn't so much fighting Peter as he was contending for the truth of the gospel, contending for the faith. Now, the Bible talks about this. In fact, ladies, I, I mentioned that you're going to be starting up the book of Jude. And so in, in the book of Jude, Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, so I guess just Jude verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And so the Bible tells us to contend for the faith. Now the word contend here, uh, 
epigonazomai. It's a word that, that, that means to, to, it translates to, to fight or to strive or, or, or to contend. But originally it was an athletic term. It would paint the picture of maybe two wrestlers vigorously grappling with each other on a mat or, or two fighters in a ring vigorously exchanging blow after blow after blow. But it was, a, it was an athletic term that's being described here. But the point of the matter, it's not telling us to be contentious. It's telling us to contend for the faith. Can I say to you that we live in a, in a culture right now that is very contentious? Anybody else have Facebook? Uh, you know, we live in a very contentious culture right now, right? I mean, we, we fight over practically everything. In fact, according to one, sociolo- one, one sociolo- sociologist, there we go, easy for me to say, this might be the, very, uh, the, the, the most uh, contentious generation of Americans that America has ever seen. We fight about anything and everything. We fight about to mask or not to mask, to vax or not to vax, you know, to be a Republican or to be a Democrat. We fight over this, we fight over that, we fight over everything. Now listen, we fight over everything, but can, let me ask you, are we fighting over the right things? Are we fighting over the right things? Are we just being contentious or are we contending for the faith? I suggest to you that we're contentious but we may not be contending for the faith. In fact, there's a recent survey, a survey of over 5,000 born-again Christians, people who identify as born-again Christians. The survey was done from the years of, of 2010 to 2020. And they found that, that belief in, in core Christian doctrines has dropped from, from over 47% back in 2010 to less than 25% in 2020. In fact, they found that, that, that 60% of born-again Christians now believe that there's more than one way to salvation, more than one way to heaven. You know, you can believe in Jesus or, or Buddha or Muhammad. They say, hey, it's all the same. As long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you believe. That's more than 60% of so-called born-again Christians. And likewise, 60% of born-again Christians believe that the Bible is filled with errors, with mistakes. And, and 30% of born-again Christians believe that Jesus sinned while he was alive on the earth. So, you know, maybe the cause of the gospel would be, would be better served if we stopped fighting about masks and about this and about that and started to contend for the faith. If we stopped fighting for, over the things that don't really matter and fight for the one thing that actually does matter, the truth of the gospel. Because clearly, over 60% of us don't even know what the truth of the gospel is anymore. And yet we say that we're born again. And so we need to contend for the faith. But can I suggest to you that while we contend with, for the faith, that we don't be contentious? Remember, we, we need to remember the Apostle Paul's exhortation in, in Ephesians chapter 4, I believe in verse 17. He said, speak the truth in love. Some of us have no problem speaking our mind. But we need to speak the truth in love. I'll leave you with this quote. It's a quote that's often attributed to St. Augustine. Some people attribute it to Charles Spurgeon. But originally, it was actually first spoken by a 1600s theologian in Germany by the name of Rupertus Meldenius, who said, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. And so, yes, we need to stand for the gospel. We need to speak the truth. But in love, we need to be contending for the faith, not contentious. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast.